The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Alrighty, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them once again, the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. We're going to be picking up here in just a moment, verses 16 through 20. So Mark 1, verses 16 through 20, we're going to be talking, and we'll see it in a moment, about the call of Jesus and how He would call His disciples, and of course, cause them not only to be disciples, but to ultimately be recognized as His apostles, so His anointed apostles, and He had that authority to do that, and He... Uh, we're thankful that he did. Look at all the great and wonderful work that they were able to produce. And of course, in many cases, the church stands upon their shoulders to some extent, as we might say. Uh, on Sunday, we did not get to have the PowerPoint. I'm not going to go back through it. I just kind of threw this slide up. It turns out the reason the PowerPoint did not work is I was on the last slide of my presentation. And so every time I'd go to put the slide up, it would actually throw it out of it. So. Of course, I didn't have time to bother with it or fool with it nonetheless, but that whole section basically surrounded itself about what Jesus said, particularly in verse 15, in saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Of course, that was the beginning of his earthly ministry as far as spoken word. We know from the other gospel accounts that he had, did, had done and said other things, but that was very impactful and stood out to Mark. Uh, for him allowing to begin his ministry in Galilee, uh, particularly right then. And of course, that came right on the heels of his temptation by Satan. And, and we looked and focused mainly on the, the word time and also on the word fulfilled in that. And we saw that there were two, basically two Greek words that backed up that, uh, the idea of time. Uh, there was the one, and I don't pronounce these correctly, but the, the chronos, which is more the, the time as in the clock or as in our wrist or whatever we might have to do tail time. That's the passing of time. But the word that was chosen there by God was not the time as far as the passing of time, but was a keros, and I don't say that right, but uh, it meant that there was a point in time. It was an absolute time that was established. It was more of a period like you would see on a calendar than that which you would see on a clock. And one of the things I didn't mention then is it was so important that Jesus said that. Not only was he calling on those men and saying to them, it's the time is right now for you to begin to repent. The time is now for you to believe. And setting a place in eternity where that would start for them and for us. He was also, if you might recognize this, all of eternity has been changed by the life of Christ. Whether it be his birth, whether it be his beginning of his ministry right here, whether it be his death ultimately. And I'm sure one day time will turn again. I don't know what form. It wouldn't matter with us. But time will turn again when he returns. And that's very well illustrated in just the way that we describe time. You know, we've got terms that we use. We may say, well, that happened, uh, for example, in 733 B.C. And we oftentimes define that very basically. We say, well, that's before the time of Christ. Yeah, so time turns right there. Uh, you might then in turn, and some would say, well, then that happened. And we live in 2023 A.D. And I used to think, well, that meant after his death. And I don't think that's bad to think that way. That's kind of a, a dividing line. But it's not that. It's a word that means, it's anno domine, meaning in the year of our Lord. And, of course, we see that. And you and I appreciate that. And we, we're fine with using that. I'm not making an argument against or for such. Uh, but in modern times, more modern times, 
there are a number of people who do not like acknowledging that. They do not like acknowledging that the calendar changed by Jesus. That there was a time before Christ. There is a time after His death, uh, to use that uh, colloquially. Uh, they want to change that. And they say, well, this is not that. This is B.C.E., before the Common Era, they call it. The Common Era. Or they might say, well, this is C.E. We're living in the Common Era. And there's no argument that that's true. I mean, there's a, a before Common Era, the one we live in. There's one that we live in now. But all they're doing is trying to negate the fact that Jesus, in coming to this earth, forever changed it. And time stood still and stands still for him. And so everyone who lived on the old law, the law of Moses, they were living, perhaps many of them unknowingly, but they were living pointing to that cross. And every one of us who lived past that, we're living pointing back toward that cross. And that's where our eternity stands. And that's why some of those words in that particular verse or those series of verses, verse 15 and 16 of this book, are so very important. We didn't get to express that necessarily on Sunday. We looked at all these words. I'm not trying to go back through any of that. But again, we're picking up tonight in looking at this, this idea of the call of Jesus. And so let's read that text together and we'll make some comment in just a moment. Here's what it says, Mark chapter 1, verse 16, beginning. And as he, that is Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee... He saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come after me, and I will make you fish to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. Verse 19, And when he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with their hired servants and went after him. And so even though this is the beginning, if you will, of the call of his disciples, understand and know that it's not the fullness of that. We're going to notice in a moment on the next slide, there are only four named disciples that are called here, and there are only four that are limited to this case, to this certain account, but that doesn't limit that. Matter of fact, not here in Mark chapter 1, but when you get over to Mark chapter 3, that's when you get kind of that full list of all 12 of those original apostles. Of course, we have the additionals and Matthias coming to take the place of Judas after his death, and we ultimately have Paul being added to that list by the choice of our Lord. But nonetheless, this is not the full list. It's not intended to be that. And when you think about the parallel passages, as far as direct parallels, Mark has one account. I don't know why it's not changed up here. There we go. Mark has one account as well as uh, Matthew has an account, Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, that meets up with this more directly. But as a direct sense, Luke nor John mentioned this specifically. And you say, wait a minute now. I can go to Luke and find a listing of those disciples. I can go to John in some stages, uh, scattering about, and I can find the same list, and they're all there. They're all available. They're all useful to our Lord. But I'm talking about as far as direct parallels to this account those are, the, those are the situations where you find them. However, uh, one of those that stood out to me when I was kind of thumbing through these and reviewing these, uh, although there are details that are listed in Matthew's account and those uh, four verses that he has available, there are more details actually listed about the happenings, that is the situation or the, or the things that were going on, 
that are listed over in John's account. And so I'm sorry, in Luke's account. So Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11 is where we want to go for just a moment. Again, this is not necessarily Luke's account of the calling of the disciples, but the way that is listed in Matthew's account as well as in Mark's account, which we're actually studying, it sounds as if all Jesus did was just walk by the seaside. He looked, he said, I'll take you, I'll take you, I'll take you, I'll take you. Or maybe he said, I'll take you, and if you want to bring your brother, fine, I'll take you, and if you want to bring your brother, that's good too. That's not exactly the way these things laid out, and it is not necessarily. Now, underline that word necessarily in your minds, because I'm making that as a disclaimer. This is not necessarily the first contact that Jesus had with any of these men. He may have very well had prior contact to them. Matter of fact, there's some evidence to prove that he did have some contact with some of these men prior to actually calling them to go along with him. But uh, when he made the, had that contact with them, it was prior to him making the decision to carry them along. You know, more than likely these men, many of them at least, seemingly were uh, followers of John the baptizer. They were disciples of his. And so the transference of that, I won't say that authority, because there was no transfer of authority, but that transference of uh, that work took place preceding verses in Mark's account when it said that John was placed into prison. So at the point that John goes into prison, for whatever reason, Jesus is spurned to go out and begin his public ministry over and in Galilee. Jesus goes out, and it's at that point, after making that pronouncement of the fact that you have to repent, you have to know the kingdom of heaven is in hand, you have to believe in me, it's at that point, chronologically, in which Jesus finally says, okay, I'll begin to take you and you and you, and you can follow after me. But in this point... He's not necessarily choosing them, not that he wouldn't know his full intention, but he's not choosing them and saying, I'm going to pick 12 apostles, so if you'll help me out here, we'll find 12 of the best men in the neighborhood, and, and those are the ones who follow me. He's simply appointing men to be his disciples. So if you went over to Luke, which I hadn't gotten there yet, but if you go to Luke's account, Luke chapter 4, notice what it said. Now some of this does parallel fairly well, but in, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 5, Look at what it said beginning in verse 1. It tells us this. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gethsemane. And we'll see later Gethsemane, Galilee. There are other words or terms by which this is used. It all refers to the same uh, lake or, if you will, the same sea of Galilee. And he saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. Now that parallels pretty closely with what we find with, John, with James and John, the sons of Zebedee in a moment. He saw them washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships. Again, this detail or these details are not given in either of the other accounts. He entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. See, I'll read that just to point out that Jesus is active in ministry by this point. He didn't make one statement, one proclamation, then turn around based on just that and say, I'll talk choosing disciples, you come after me. These men were not ignorant, perhaps most likely were not at all ignorant of Jesus' intentions, what he was willing to do, what his goals were, 
for not just life, but eternity for us. They were aware of that to some point. And here we have him in one of these two ships, which are going to be named in Mark's account, we just read. But in one of these two ships, perhaps, if these line up correctly, he's teaching all those people. So he taught the people out of the ship. And now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, same parallel, that's Simon Peter, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night and have therefore taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had, that, had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their nets break. And they beckon unto their partners. Who might that be? Perhaps could be uh, that of those first two named apostles over in Mark's account which were in the other ship that they should come and help, that they should come and fill both of the ships so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter, now he's named Peter here very early in Luke's account. Mark does not do that for quite a while in his. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished at all that were with him. And they at the draw of the fishes which they had taken. And so for that, James, John, the sons of Zebedee, were their partners. And Simon and Jesus said unto them, Simon, fear not. From thenceforth thou shalt catch men. So see, that's not a direct parallel as far as he specifically said to be calling disciples. He's not saying to them, you know, follow after me, come after me, get in behind, we'll, we'll work together. But in the fact that he was there and he was available to them, and he in turn not only taught from one of their ships, but from that same ship, he goes out and proves to them by a miracle that is who he claimed to be. So that's not to discredit or to take away from the, the quick action that we read about in Mark's account of these four men being willing to get in and follow after him, become his disciples and all. But that just shows that they did not do it without evidence. Neither today does Jesus call upon any man to follow after him without first having access to evidence. It's okay for someone to be curious and to be interested and to be desirous to actually study their Bible and to have something to even be proven to them before they make that choice. To me, I'm far too guilty, perhaps you are, and I'm glad that we could be enthused and excited about bringing others to Christ, as we like to say it, or something like that. But we've got to be cautious that we make sure that those people understand why they are following Him what they are doing, and what is required of them. And these men had some access to that. So I think that's where, in some cases, Luke does become a parallel, a very good parallel to this. So let's go back to Mark now, and we'll start our more specific discussion of the text right here. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that as far as the disciples that are named here, there are only four being named, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. That's not the complete list. Again, that can be found over in the third chapter of Mark. But if you put some, some weight, and I think we probably can in this case, if you put a little bit of weight as far as these men and their names, and, and of course there's, there's something in a name to one extent, uh, you can find something out about these men, and it's significant because Jesus ultimately would use some of these names. In Peter's case, I think sometimes maybe use it against him, but in another case, use it for his favor. For example, as you've heard before, the name Simon, this is his name that uh, 
Of course, uh, Luke just named out both Simon and Peter real quick there. But Simon, as far as his name that's used here in Mark, that name meant something to the effect of a stone or a rock. But this is what's interesting about it. It's a Greek version of the Hebrew name for Simeon, which meant to hear. That's something I haven't come across before, and I was very interested. I spent uh, too much time last night after midnight really digging into that and just considering it. But the fact that the great thing about Peter is he was willing to hear. You know, how many times do we accuse Peter and say, well, he's just impetuous Peter. That's not a Mumford word, so I've, I've looked that up, and that means something like he pops off at the mouth. But how many times have we accused Peter of being impetuous and I mean, he does reacting to every situation and not thinking and not using his, his brain, if you want to call it that? When what Peter was really willing to do, his name bears it out, not that the name had to prove his character, but it did. He actually was willing to listen. It was Peter was one of those very early adopters that was willing, you remember in John's record, John chapter 6, verse 68 and following, when Jesus had many of the disciples, and by that it just means those that were listening to him, that were going away, Jesus turns to those 12 and he says, will you also go away? What does Peter say? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Lord, to whom shall we go? Why should we leave you? In essence, what had happened? Peter had been hearing Peter had been listening. Also, we find in Matthew 16, verses 16 through 18, uh, where there's an exchange of Jesus asking the question of those disciples, who do men say that I am? Of course, they gave him some answers, and he turned and said, who do ye say that I am? Now, what answer did Peter give? He said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He knew who he was. How did he get that information? Well, according to Jesus, he got it by revelation in that context, but revelation from God is still hearing. So maybe that's significant. Now the one that I'm not sure about, and he's downstairs, at least Andrew I thought of immediately, uh, he would probably like to fit that bill, but Andrew literally means the manly one or the conqueror. And so I don't know what that really has to do with Andrew's character. Many of these apostles eventually would be called apostles. Many of these men we don't have a lot of detail on. We don't have a lot of uh, real detail about their lives. We don't have a lot about their events. But I do know this. Andrew is listed in John's account as being among those who came to see Jesus and was willing, I, I would assume you could apply it this way, he was willing to conquer, have himself to be conquered in order to follow after Jesus. And then the next one named here in this group, James, and uh, my first name is James, so I didn't realize this, but surplanter means basically the one who divides, the divisive one. So that was, thank you for that uh, thing right there. I'm glad I'm called Jim, I guess, by that. But uh, I, don't, I don't know what that necessarily meant for him other than there would be some issue later with James and John. They would be called the sons of thunder. And the fact that they were arguing amongst each other who and their mother also for their fact of who's greatest in the kingdom and who's going to be greatest. Who deserves all the credit. So I don't know what that has to do. And then John is one that really stands out as well. The name John means a couple different things, but mainly Jehovah is a gracious giver. If you think about the man who would ultimately be the apostle John that's chosen here or listed here in this account, what a life he would live. What a legacy he would leave. He writes the Gospel of John, of course. He also writes the epistles of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. 
And you can really see if you've read through those, I'm sure you have as a Bible student, but there's a huge transformation that occurs, it seems, in the life of John, the older that he got, the more he aged. I think there was a lot of maturity that came in, of course, but there was also a lot more, uh, more of a loving spirit that comes out in those three epistles toward the end. And he was given, apparently, a long life. Both biblical records seems to apply to that. John 21, he's listed there as the one who Jesus loved. He had a close relationship with him. But then we also realize that he dies, ultimately. Revelation describes it on the Isle of Patmos. Eventually, it's where he was. And according to history, he dies on the Isle of Patmos in exile, most likely making him the longest living of all those apostles. And so certainly the Lord was a gracious giver to him. Now, on the side here, I don't expect you to be able to see any of that. Uh, our printer is out of toner or nearly about, so I just printed a couple of these there on the back table. But that's just the listing of the other of the apostles slash disciples and some of the things that they were involved in, their professions mainly, that we got the fishermen that are listed here, there are four listed here. There very well may be a total of seven of the apostles that ultimately would be known as fishermen, although we don't have specific evidence on some of the others, but it seems that they were at least oftentimes present in the company of these main four, which either it meant they were professional at fishing or at least they had been exposed to. Maybe they're just the buddy that got carried to the lake on Saturday. I don't know, but uh, it seems that to be the case. There were, of course, others listed, tax collectors, zealots, a thief, and then those other apostles that are totally, uh, as far as their livelihoods are totally unnamed. The point being that God, or Jesus, I should say, being God in the body, he selected out of a group of the, the whole population, I assume, but yet he selected men that were very uh, unlikely to some extent as far as what they would do. The fishermen, of course, probably being too common and too undereducated perhaps for at least what the Jews would think they ought to be if they're going to be chosen to be a disciple to the, the Messiah. Uh, of course, the tax collector, of course, he would have been an outcast for his job and his duties and so forth, that all the way down until you get to Judas, uh, known to be a thief, but yet was chosen as well. So maybe that leaves opportunity for us, but that's just some description of them. Now, as far as the text itself, we'll have to hurry through this quite a bit, but the first phrase we ran into there in verse 16 says, and as he walked by the sea of Galilee. Now the Sea of Galilee is known by several different names. A lot of that had to do, uh, seemingly some of it at least, had to do with what side of that lake, it was really a larger lake, but which side of that lake you lived on. Approximately about 20 miles by about 8 miles at its widest point was all that it was. But much like we may, we may look today and somebody says, well, you know, I live on this particular lake and they call it by the name of their neighborhood, their street. Somebody on the other side says, oh, no, that's not lake so-and-so. This is actually this. That seemingly happened just a little bit in this. But the names that were applied to this, and I've got them listed out in my little scribble writing on the top, Numbers 34, 11, Luke 5 and 1, and John 6 and 1. Of course, there are a ton of references uh, to them otherwise. But the names that were given out to them specifically, I tried to put up right here. Uh, of course, this is a, a little bit of a 3D-ish type of picture of the Sea of Galilee. And what's interesting to me and why I chose this particular graphic when I was searching, Jesus did so much around the Sea of Galilee. Particularly over on the eastern side, Jesus did a ton, or on the western side, I should say, he did a ton of his work there. And a, a lot of the biblical accounts 
whether it be involving Jesus or involving his disciples, involving the miracles that he did or the, the sermons that we have recorded preached, such as the Sermon on the Mount, really basically occurred all up around the Sea of Galilee. It was kind of a, a center point of that time of the world itself. And that had a lot to do with how fertile it was, uh, particularly on that uh, western side, I think it was. It was supposedly very fertile land, of course, surrounded by mountains. It's, it's actually pretty deep. The Sea of Galilee is much lower in elevation than the Mediterranean Sea, which faces it over on that side, on that eastern side. But it actually geographically uh, allowed it, because of its depths and because of the, the walled mountains around it, it allowed it to be pretty sheltered to some extent in order for it to be fertile. But at the same time, there are many storms that are recorded with very specific intention uh, that happened involving the disciples and Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. And according to some of those early um, non-Christian, non-religious writers such as Josephus, we have quite a bit of record that proves that it was a very treacherous, stormy place. But at the same time, when you catch it on a good day, it's probably one of the most beautiful places on earth. And I kind of got stuck in a little rabbit hole today of looking at some pictures. And I've never been there, but it was amazing how beautiful it really is. You know, when it is calm, it's just mirror clear. It's, it's an amazing place to be. But when those storms would arise, it'd be a completely different place. But it was known by these other names, Chinnereth. Of course, that's mostly the Old Testament uh, version of that. I guess Cinnereth, as Luke 5 and verse 1, we just read across Tiberius and such. There are plenty of other references, particularly to the one we're seeing here tonight in our context, Galilee is by far the most common usage of this lake's um, name or naming system of it. But it lets us know that's where Jesus was. And it tells us again, and when he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, we've already discussed them. It says they were casting, uh, Mark's account, casting a net. Now, there are basically, there are probably several others, basically two main, main types of nets that would have been used, probably by the most wealthy of fishermen. I would imagine this might be the case. They had a net, more or less, that they would throw off the back or to one side or the other of the ship, and basically was the length of, or at least the breadth of the ship itself. And that net was rather large. It was weighted in such a way as to the fact they basically drop it overboard, it would go down, it would have weights on the bottom of it, and it would basically just become an entire blockade to any fish that would be going by. So I guess they would position that to where the currents would carry those fish into it, what have you. And then there were the smaller nets, most likely what's mentioned here just by the way he describes it. The casting nets, uh, depending on, you know, obviously they could be of other sizes, most of those casting nets, they were literally cast by hand. And I watched some video today, again, wasting time, I guess, of a man casting one of these supposed ancient type of nets and the way he was casting and such, and it kind of reminded me of a, a softball player, you know, a fast-pitch softball player. I mean, this guy could chunk it. But what happened when where they did the drop nets, they just dropped them in or the casting nets either one, most of the time, especially for the poorer fishermen, it was a very, very, very laborious job. They had to have a way, and there's some indication this may be what these disciples did. Uh, Luke's account even seems to carry a little bit of that. But they had to have a way of getting that net up and really closing that net to encapsulate those fish. And in John chapter 20, the account, very close reference to what Luke just recorded, 
uh, where Jesus tells them, cast your net on the other side, that type thing. But in John chapter 20, that account, it talks about Peter, how that he had to gird on his fisherman's coat before he jumped in the water to come to Jesus. It even says, the King James translation says that Peter was naked. That just means his outer garment was off. Most likely, historically, could indicate, my disclaimer, could indicate that Peter was the man who had drawn the short straw and was jumping in the water, gathering manually, scuba diving down kind of, gathering manually the bottom of this net, drawing it in so they could pull it up. I don't know if that's really here or there. But indicative of the fact that these men were working. They were already doing a work. They were already doing something that was very involved. And so they are definitely involved in labor at the point in time he comes to get them. But he sees them casting their net. It says, for they were fishers. Now, how many times in our lives have we known and we've, we've done this to each other and, and all, but many times men particularly are identified by what they do. You know, you get in a, get in a group and first thing, there's no conversation. Somebody say, well, it's been nice outside. You know, the weather's nice. Yeah, it is. Oh, so what do you do? And we define people by their work. And we understand that. These men were said to be fishers but what did Jesus desire and Jesus said unto them meaning all of them come after me I think some translations simply put the term in there follow after me they changed come to follow that particular term or those terms that are translated there come after me or follow after me or in the Greek sense of things, there was known as the aorist imperative. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, aorist means there's no specific time frame for that other than it does start. It's, it's now. The imperative of it is Jesus at that place. Now, again, I'm admitting he had prior contact with them more than likely. But at that point in time, at least the way Jesus used the terms, the way he spoke, and ultimately the way they reacted to his speaking, his call for them, they took that to mean come right now. He wasn't waiting, he wasn't taking notes and saying, well, if anybody's interested, you know, next spring I'm going to be starting up a class and I'm going to be teaching some men in different places that I go about and I want to take some application for men who might be interested. He comes to these men standing, one group in the, in the sea, one group standing on the seashore, and he calls them and he says, come after me. As in, you must come after me. It needs to happen now. There's a place to that. And there's a place in our lives where all of us must hear that same call that we come after him. But the promise that he gave them was, he says, quote, I will make you to become fishers of men. I love the way, and I kind of looked into some of these wording and some of the, the parallels that we did have in the sense that Jesus is not implying to them that they can do this on their own. He's going to make them that. He's going to make them, quote, to become those fishers of men. It's something that's going to be enacted by Him. It's going to be His, his authority that they are able to deliver the gospel with. It's going to be by His authority they bring others to Him. And again, I think that's a little bit of a void, a little bit of confusion, and some of the disappointment that comes out in our lives when we try to follow the Great Commission, as we refer to it, or we try to make disciples, as he's calling on these men ultimately to do for them, and we get disappointed when we sit down and we try to have a Bible discussion with someone, or maybe we have that formal study with them, and they don't seem to attach on to it, and they don't seem to be interested, or maybe they even reject it. 
And we get upset and say, well, how can I improve myself? What can I do better? Well, first of all, the only way to do better is to get closer and closer to this and be more clear as to the fact that this is the authority of God that's calling you, not me. But the truth is there may not be anything we can do better because God's already done the best. And so he says, I will make you to become fishers of men. Now, several things that are also could be added to this and just that idea. Again, these men, I just said this, these men are not doing this of their own power. They're not necessarily doing this of their own agenda. They, prior to this, were fishers, fishers themselves of physical fish, but he desires them to have their lives to be changed. And so another thing that I look into, and this is a little bit interesting, you can't probably see half of this, but when you take the word come, and at least the word that it was translated from, that comes from a Greek word that looks like episto. I don't know how you say that. I'm not even trying to say it correctly, I guess. But it looks something like that. The English letter is O-P-I-S-O. That carries with it a couple of ideas, but it's a close kin to the word pistuo in the Greek, which has something to do with faith. So what is Jesus actually asking these men? We might call it this, to step out on faith. Meaning I don't have every answer to every question right now available, or at least I'm not willing to answer every question you can have about following me. But I'm asking you to trust me. That's, again, a large extent of what we have to do today. We've got to trust God. We've got to trust Jesus. We've got to come with Him and follow Him whatever, whichever way that should carry us. And that's, of course, borne out in what it comes down to as they become, they followed Him, the middle verse, verse 18, and it brings them down to the fact that they become His disciples. Now, Jesus in this period of time, it seems, and it specifically told us He was walking by the Sea of Galilee, um, he would have been known in that day most likely, and I, I have to really look at this. I've got it jotted down in my margin right here, and I, I won't say it right. Brad probably would know more about this. As a peripathetic teacher. It, it's, it's actually Latin, part of it. But a peripathetic teacher. Say, so what does that mean? It means he walked around to teach. You know, many of the teachers, rabbis of that day, they were those which are situated in the temples or situated in the synagogues. Eventually it would be synagogues. They were situated in certain places where men came to them and they came to a centralized location and they studied at their feet like Paul did with Gamaliel, for example. Uh, they spent a lot of time studying after these teachers, these rabbis, and they came to them. And in most cases, the way that those men uh, chose to study under someone, I'd use Paul and Gamaliel again, was something similar to the fact that someone may choose to go to a college or a university today. You know, you make application, you put in all the criteria, you, you share them with that college or whatever, your grades from high school or from the past, and you try to prove to them that you're worthy of being a student of theirs, and at the end of the day, you, you write that check. It's what really pushes it over the edge now, but... You made that application. You decided if and when you wanted to follow. And all those rabbis would in some senses, although not necessarily literally, don't, don't misunderstand me, uh, they in some senses took application. And they stood back as often saying, pop there for verbal suspenders and said, oh no, he's not worthy to sit at my feet. No, no, we wouldn't do that. He, he won't be allowed in this rabbinical school. He won't be. 
Jesus is doing something different. Jesus is going around and handpicking his disciples, and in most cases, not that they had applied necessarily. And is that peripathetic, and that's not pathetic, but peripathetic is pathetic actually. Teacher, it just meant he was a walking teacher. And I've seen some of these, and I don't put on my reliance in any of these television shows or movie series or whatever. There are several of those series in the last uh, five, ten years that have come out about the life of Christ and his disciples and, and such as that. And they'll depict that. That, you know, uh, oftentimes Jesus wasn't necessarily just seated on the side of a hillside. He did some of that. Or beside a seaside. He was oftentimes just kind of wandering through the wilderness. And if you want to be a student of him, you just kind of fell in and fell out. You just, you were there, you spent the day. That's why those multitudes were with him in the record when he fed the 5,000, ultimately would feed the four and, and more uh, thousand people. Those people were just there as, as, as day students or whatever you want to call that, but they were there to learn of him. And they were being called upon to follow him because he would be progressive and he would be on the move. So he tells them, I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets, verse 18, and followed him. That is, they became what you would see down here toward the bottom. And I won't try to pronounce that big funny word. But they became his disciples. Another meaning of that word down here is his attendants. And that is, they attended sometimes to his needs. Of course, we know ultimately Jesus would prove to them that he would be a servant to them as well, but they were to be attendant to him as well as be learners of. So, of course, ultimately the apostles would be set apart from all the disciples in that they would be the ones who would be sent out. But in this case right here, we have those who followed. So they were learners, they were followers, and they were being taught. Verse 19 and when he had gone a little bit farther, we just read across this, he went a little farther and saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the ship, uh, also in the ship mending their nets, most likely the same type of nets. However, and I'm, I, don't, I can't prove, I'm not trying to claim for sure that there's a, dis, a distinguishment, is that a word? A way of distinguishing between these two brothers and these other two brothers. They very well may have been in cohorts, that ain't the right word, cahoots with each other and may have been working together to some extent, likely probably were. Uh, but we know directly that these two latter ones named here, James and John, were specifically in business with and employed with their father, Zebedee. We know that for a fact because it says that when they left, he had to turn and use some of his servants to fulfill that business, to get that labor. But we've got these two groups. These are... And this is something I've kind of trying to understand. I think of these men as being dirt poor fishermen. They weren't necessarily that, particularly these latter two. I mean, there was a business that was established there. And if they were hired servants, there was some more business to that. But when they did leave, and this is something I was about to say, from what I've been able to indicate, this doesn't have to mean that these men left and turned their back on their families and, and you know, left them high. There's, there's no indication that they constantly, continuously were, you know, just chomping at, at, at just sitting at Jesus' feet 24-7 left everybody. Matter of fact, the indications are different than that because we have in the same context a little bit later, Jesus goes back to heal 
one of Peter's family members being his mother-in-law. So they've got relationship, they've got communication, and it could be every indication that they could go back and assist their father at times, perhaps. They could spend time with him. But they were the students, they were the learners of Jesus. And so we find out here, it says they forsook, I'm in verse 18, forsook their nets, followed him. And these two men follow suit as well. It says, um, rereading 19, he had gone a little farther thence. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were there mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Now this, this phrase here, the fact that he called them and the fact that they went after him, again, is an indicator that they were willing already at that point to stick with Jesus as far as their dedication. Now, that doesn't have to always mean their physical 24-7 presence, but their dedication, their... That's, that's probably the only word I can come up with, but their... What's another word? Commitment. That's, that's the word I wish I'd known. Their commitment was to our Lord, and they were willing to do whatever ultimately He would require them. And I got a couple of references, I don't know, scattered all over the place. I think this is the one, uh, Matthew chapter 10, 37 and 38. That's where Jesus spoke to his disciples and basically told them, you've got to be willing to leave your father and mother, you know, to put those things of this life aside, if it means so, for me. And, of course, a better, uh, more optimal plan would be that to get your father and mother, the brother and sister, and all to follow Jesus' well. That's, that's the easy way to solve that, or at least I don't know that it's easy. That's the most comfortable way to solve that. But he doesn't want anyone or anything to stand in our way. So that's, that's just mostly some of that. Oh, I, didn't, I, didn't over, I did overlook the one word right here for call. That's the Greek word kaleo, which is the similar word in the same word family of the Holy Spirit, the comforter who puts his arm around us. And so he called them to really be at a close, intimate relationship with him. As a matter of fact, out of these four men, three of them would ultimately continue to be listed as among his most intimate disciples and or friends. So uh, a lot of practical application here. I won't get to, but there was a lot of dedication involved as far as what they left behind and for what they were willing to find by following after Jesus. So next week, Lord willing, we'll get into verse 21. Uh, we're going through verse 24, in the, uh, 34, I should say, in this. And that's going to divide itself into two sections in my mind. We'll try to cover it all at one time. But first of all, we're going to notice his words. That is what Jesus taught in the very beginning of this ministry with these disciples on board, as well as his works, because he's about to start some of his most miraculous uh, works that Mark's records right out of the gate. So he doesn't waste any time. That word immediately comes into effect over and over again throughout this first chapter. So we'll get to that, the command that he had, and that's the authority that he has with his word, and he astonished others as well as with his works. Any question or comment? All right. Thank you for your attention, y'all. Have a good, safe evening.